Welcome to BitFaced. If everything works out correctly, you'll be hearing this episode on Friday the 13th, September 13th, which also happens to be my birthday. And I cannot think of a better episode to release on my birthday than this one. When they came out of the with the list of guests from Colorado Springs Comic Con, this was the panel I put my hat into the ring to do. Because how often do you get to sit down with a goddamn legend? And that's what Robert England is. Lots of good questions here from the audience, too. I had some decent ones myself, I thought. At one point, Robert goes to the front of the stage and does a Shakespearean monologue, which blew my mind. One of the best panels I think I've ever been allowed to participate in, and Robert could not have been cooler. Backstage, him and I talked about skateboarding, which I never thought I'd be talking to Freddy Krueger about skateboarding. But Robert, believe it or not, was actually in an issue of Thrasher, which I'm trying to track down. Huge skater and surfer himself. Thank you, of course, to Project Nerd one more time for the audio. We couldn't do this without you guys. Also couldn't do it without Elijah from Altered Reality Entertainment that was gracious enough to give me the panel. Colorado Springs Comic Con could not have been better hosts. It was a great con. I hope everybody had a good time. And finally, it's always good to look out in the audience and see Gabe and Juan from Thinking Outside the Long Box. In fact, I don't want to make assumptions here, but when I left the Robert England panel, Gabe looked like a proud father. And to kind of elaborate on that a little bit, Gabe taught me how to do panels. Before my first panel, he sat down and gave me a 15-minute instruction on what I needed to do up there. And he didn't have to do that. And let's be honest, thinking outside the long box is our competition at the end of the day. But he put that all aside and he helped me out. And I think at Denver Comic-Con this year and also at this panel, I made him proud. So thank you, Gabe, for really taking care. There's, there needs to be more people like you in the world. Anyway, if you want to wish me a happy birthday, go donate to Magic Wheelchair. That's what I'm all about this year. Great charity. So give them a donation or, like I said, give uh, Power Ranger Anthony a like and subscribe on his YouTube channel. Enjoy Robert England. You won't enjoy it as much as I did, but I think you will enjoy it. Last panel of Comic-Con. Did everybody have a good weekend? That's exactly what I like to hear. The other question I have for you guys is, how did everybody sleep last night? You didn't. Thanks to A Nightmare on Elm Street, I haven't slept correctly since 1984. It's a horror movie that changed the landscape of horror forever. Nothing scared me more as a kid and I'm still haunted in my dreams. No one has ever embodied a horror character more than our guest today. If you have one for me, you name it, but you're not gonna come up with it. I'm very proud to introduce Freddie himself, Mr. Robert England. The last panel. It sounds like a new Netflix show. <laughs> How, how's your convention been, Robert? 
It's been great. You know, I love it when it's steady, but my line is not too long because I like to hand out some love to the fans. And it's nice when I, you know, about 20 or 25 people in line, I can pace myself. But I got to say, by the grace of God, I didn't ruin some valuable memorabilia this weekend because the altitude was messing with my Sharpies. And all of a sudden, they would just bleed out, you know, or drip. And, ah, I had to clean a couple up. I had to clean one up for Amanda Wiss, my first victim in Nightmare on Elm Street 1. And it was a really valuable poster. I think it was a first edition um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Um, But, you know, that's the only problem has been the Sharpies. They've been like, they have a life of their own. I'm glad that you've had a good convention. I've seen you interact with your fans, and it looks like you had a really good time. And I, I know you guys can do by noise. How happy are you guys to have Robert England sitting right up here? Calm down. It's the end of the day. Robert, A Nightmare on Elm Street brought a sense of helplessness that we've never seen in horror before. You can run from Michael Myers, you can hide from Jason, you can't run from your dreams, and you can't run from insomnia. Can you talk to me a little bit about how this psychology influenced your performance? Well, to be really honest, actors can't act psychology. You can't act theme. You need to know it uh, for the overall arch of a performance, perhaps or a choice to go high or low emotionally in a scene. Um, who to like, who not to like, you know, th- within, within the cast, uh, in, the, in the story. But you can't really act uh, psychological. My inspiration was about a week into it. Now, well, first of all, let's just tell what the theme is. I mean, Freddy's the future. Freddy's evil. Freddy's loss of innocence. Elm Street is the street our beautiful president was shot on. Jack Kennedy, Dallas, Elm Street by Lee Harvey Oswald. American president shot in my lifetime. Elm Street is also the street that Dick and Jane live on in the little reader book that we all learned how to read from. Look, Jane, here comes father. Go, Spot, greet father on Elm Street. Please don't fight with Puff the Cat. Here's my sister Sally, Elm Street. So everybody in America learned how to read from this book for 50 years. Also, every town has an Elm Street. Well, that also every town has a Broadway and a Main Street and an Oak Street. But Elm Street, Wes is no fool. So he wanted all of that symbolism in there a little bit. But I was a week into the makeup, hot summer, uh, the old Desi Lou sound stage, I Love Lucy, in California, and we're in, uh, the makeup room has those uh, revolving uh, barber's chairs, you know, that, that, that re, you know, go tilt back so you can get a shave, and uh, they were kind of nice, a little bit of air conditioning, uh, and I've been up since four in the morning, makeup applied, doing a lot of sort of stocking shots, and it's like around 11, 11.30, and I'm getting touched up, and by now the brush they touch me up with has got dried glue on it, and it's as sharp as an old arrowhead, and I'm getting poked with it, and I'm sitting there in a sweater, and it's like 86 degrees out, and I've got the sweater on and these oily pants and a pair of boots and wool socks and that damn hat, and I'm all sealed up, you know, my brain is bubbling underneath all that prosthetics. And into the makeup room waltz Johnny Depp and Heather Langenkamp. 
because it's they're gonna. I haven't worked with them yet, and at the arguably they're the two most beautiful people in the world at this moment of time. She looks like what you want Brooke Shields to look like because Brooke's beautiful, but Brooke's tall. She's a model. Heather's bite size, <laughs> you know, and she fits under your arm. And Johnny is the most handsome. He's still got baby fat, but he's got the perfect Elvis hair. And it's dry. He doesn't put any grease in or, or product in it. It just hangs perfect. He's a rockabilly rock star musician doing his first movie. He calls everybody sir and ma'am. He's in skin-tight black Levi's, beetle boots, and a Kramer rockabilly uh, shirt buttoned up all the way. Uh, and uh, they're sitting there. And the makeup girl, and I'm getting poked with that crusty brush from David Miller, you know, it's probably the same brush he used on Michael Jackson on Thriller. And, and there, the makeup girl gives them little tiny pink battery-operated fans. Because it's so hot out, and they're so pretty, and she wants to keep them cool. Hey, they don't even need makeup. I don't know what they're doing in the makeup room. They're so gorgeous. They have natural moisture still from their youth. They get little fans, and they're getting touched up. And I, I realized... Wait a minute, this envy, this anger that I'm feeling, this jealousy of these young, beautiful kids with their whole career ahead of them. And I'm turning 30, and I'm in this movie, and maybe I made the wrong decision. I don't need this little horror movie. I'm starring on television right now. I'm making more money than I've ever made. Maybe I did the wrong thing. This, maybe this wasn't a good idea. I wanted to work with Wes, but I don't know. I'm miserable, and I itch, and I'm hot. And then I thought, hey... This is all real stuff. I can use this to act with the kids and really get legitimately angry at them and toy with them and throw their little youth culture right back in their face, which is what Freddie does. So the old acting trick is you just remember that moment that I just described to you. All I have to do is remember that moment. I can be back there and I can see that damn Johnny Depp with his full head of hair. And little Heather Langenkamp with her pert little boobies. And I don't I can get back into it immediately. It's an old acting trip. It's called Sense Memory. So that's what I use. And I use that for all eight movies. Fantastic. Yeah, come on, guys. Robert, this character was created by the legendary Wes Craven. I wondered if you could share a little bit with me your favorite Wes Craven story. Okay. Well, first of all, when I went to the interview, I'd seen in a new wave bar on a continuous loop scenes from uh, Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the left, the original, very dark. The other monitor on the other end of the bar at the new wave bar I hung out with just below Sunset on La Brea Avenue in Hollywood had a continuous loop of Eraserhead. So in my mind, Wes was kind of a David Lynch genius, dark guy. I expected Marilyn Manson in black leather when I went to meet Wes Craven. Instead, it was Don Quixote in Ralph Lauren. <laughs> Six foot three, preppy, Wrinkled, perfect, comfy cords, Ralph Lauren shirt with the sleeves rolled up, tortoise shell reading glasses on, and a goatee, red hair, reddish hair. And he looked like uh, Don Quixote, those drawings of skinny, tall Don Quixote that we've all seen. And so, and he was this gentleman. Cut to, years later, I'm starring in a series for Wes. My wife and I are living in Vancouver, Canada, and we've got the best apartment. 
We scored the best apartment. Better than Heroes, Jack Coleman, better than Wes, better than his producer, Marianne. We've got the best apartment. So people tended to gather. And we're right by Stanley Park, and my dog has never been happier because my dog could chase uh, squirrels around. And this, it's the best urban park in the world. And we're watching Saturday Night Live on a Saturday night. And we've had wonderful Italian food. And we're on our second bottle of wine. And it's 11.45 at night. And we're watching one of the most famous dark sketches ever on Saturday Night Live. Head Wound Harry. <laughs> starring Dana Garvey. And Wes and Jack together are probably over 15 feet tall. I mean, they're both really tall, thin, you know, long drink of water, as my father used to say about, that was the expression people use for tall people. They're sitting on my couch, and the Head Wound Harry sketch comes on. Check it out. I think it's on YouTube. You can find it. Head Wound Harry, and it's dark and sick humor, and it's funny, and Wes loses it. He starts laughing so hard, and he's giggling like a 14-year-old boy, and he almost falls off my couch, and that was my boss, the writer of the movies that made me famous, the director and writer of the television series I was doing for NBC, the man that had given me this gift of being an international star, letting me see him as the big goofy kid that he'd always been, that he held on to in his heart. And that's the memory of Wes I will always treasure. Thank you. You got to play many different versions of Freddy, and I think the character changed as the movies went on. What was your favorite version of Freddy to play? Because the first movie is pretty dark. Later on, you get more into the comedic horror element of it. I want to know what, what you liked about it. What was your well, favorite? Wes was a little perturbed that we, explore, we, we exploited the humor. But you have to remember, it's all through Nightmare on Elm Street 1. My gosh, I, uh, my tongue comes out of a phone. I'm your boyfriend now. Uh, I wear Tina's face. You know, I cut my fingers off and green goose spurts out of them. I, I mean, Freddie's having fun. He's like the cat that toys with a bird before he kills it. And uh, so I think my, I like my performance in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4 the best. Rennie Harlan left me alone, and I got to dance it a little bit, you know, a little reptilian. I got to kind of, Freddie's not earthbound. Freddie's not out back in the alley smoking a cigarette. Freddie's in your imagination. And in this room, there's a hundred imaginations right now, and all of them are a little different. I mean, what do we know about Freddie? He wears a red and green sweater, he has a hat, and he, may, and, and, he, and he wears a glove with knives on it. Well, that could be long knives, short knives, razor blades, fish knives. The glove could be black. The glove could be the gardening glove that it is. His hat could be an old baseball hat. You know, all worn out. His hat could be, the sweater could be the sweater we know, or it could be buttoned up the front. It could be a cardigan, with red, as long as it has red and green stripes. So, Freddie lives in everybody's different imagination. And so, I always th thought that I, could be, I should be allowed to sometimes just live up to the uh, surreal scenery around me of the boiler room or some of the sets or the colors that the art department you know put behind me as as the dream mutated or the dream landscape changed and Rennie Harlan in part four kind of left me alone and I was able to kind of be the Freddy I, I wanted to be but other movies uh, have my favorite Freddy moments 
Nightmare 4 doesn't necessarily have my favorite Freddy moments, but all in all, I think that's my favorite performance, although I think 7 is the best, and, it, and it's got so much of Wes's heart in it. Uh, that Wes Craven's new Nightmare is my favorite. I think one is the scariest. And I think if you took a vote, I think Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Dream Warriors, is the fan favorite. Yes. Yeah. Welcome to prime time. <laughs> it's, it's y'all's turn now. I've, I've taken way too much of the mic. Uh, wow, okay. We'll start with Ghost Rider here, and I'll work my way around. All right, guys? Yeah. Did you enjoy the comments, during Glenn? Did I what? Enjoy the con. Oh, yeah, you guys, this is a great con. And I got to tell you, I got to walk around a little bit on the way over here because I haven't been, they haven't let me upstairs until today. And, you know, chained down there in the cellar, uh, you know, me and Amanda and uh, Walking Dead and the cartoonists. But uh, uh, it, it, a couple of Power Rangers were allowed to hang out with us. But uh, it's, this is a great con. And, I mean, I've seen dealer art here I've never seen before. Uh, I've seen a lot of stuff I haven't seen before, and uh, I was really, really impressed. I just wish I didn't have to hit the road because I'd just love to go play, uh, you know, Garden of the Gods and, the, the, you know, the Broadmoor for cocktails and you know, a couple, <laughs> couple things like that. While the rest of you, while the rest of you put your backpacks on and hike Pike's Peak. <laughs> um, two questions. One, can I be the new Freddy Krueger? Because I have the voice for it. Is this guy auditioning? <laughs> <laughs> okay, second, who's your other favorite ca horror character besides Freddy? Uh, Hannibal Lecter. Oh. And, and, and by the way, I love them all. Brian Cox is God. Anthony Hopkins is brilliant. But Mick, Mads Mickelson. Did any of you watch Hannibal when it was on TV? Yeah. The, by the last season, there were whole episodes where no one even talked. It was just imagery. Oh, and Mads Mickelson in the kitchen. What's in the refrigerator, Mads? <laughs> right there? Yeah, sorry, we, we will try to get to everybody, guys. Uh, what can you tell us about the screenplay that you had written for Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Freddy's Funhouse? Uh... Well, that's not my, that wasn't my title, but I, that might be... There's a rumor, and again, it's just a rumor, and, and you guys have to take everything on the internet with a grain of salt, because 50% of it's complete BS. But there's a rumor now about John Saxon writing that script. I wrote a script for Nightmare 3, and I worked really hard on it, and it was about uh, Tina's sister, right. a college girl, a journalist major, journalism major, who wanted to get to the bottom of her sister's death. And the technology that I was using all through my draft was microfiche. Remember, you used to go to the library, and then you'd roll that machine down and get old newspaper columns and stuff. And so that was sort of like the, the recurring image in my movie. And she was trying to get to the bottom. But what would happen is she would use the microfilm, and then it would start to expand into real film, and you would learn the prequel. You would learn the real story of Fred Krueger. And the first, the first kills. <laughs> that kinda, was my title, I think. The first kills. They kind of did a little of that with the uh, the series, right? Uh, well, the, yeah. Well, uh, obviously, by the time they got around to doing the series, they'd been sitting around with my script in a drawer for three years. <laughs> they took a lot of stuff from that script, but you know that's Hollywood. That's the way it works. My ex wrote Lost Boys. That's my title, 
and she had half of Spaceballs. Now, it's not Mel Brooks. It's somebody at 20th Century Fox. Half of Spaceballs was in a movie my, my ex wrote years before. There's a, but you got to be careful. You can't talk about anything, you know. Let's go uh, you and the red first. Thanks for scaring the crap out of me for 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm looking forward to the Travel Channel show. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I, here's the thing. This is why I'm so freaked out, you guys. I, set a, I cleared my calendar for July and to do this show, my new show. It was called Shadows of History then. Now it's called True Terror with Robert England. But it's for the you know, travel and discovery and history uh, and National Geographic. They're all the same company. And I think Mr. Shatner's doing one of them now too and uh mine is all based on on things from newspapers that are strange and weird and dark and occult but they've they're not urban legends they're real they were real enough and sourced enough that they wound up in newspapers things like people being buried alive really cool stuff like that but now it got pushed because they need to get all the reenactments done so that i can narrate them and then i do my my stuff on camera so now I don't think I'm going to start doing it until September. And I, I'm not a fresh. I'm going to be dog meat by the time. You know, I don't want to phone it in either. I really like the first three episodes that I've read. They're great. Uh, it's a real fun show, but I'm just so worried about, you know, what kind of shape. I think I'm going to just need to go sit in a steam room all day or something, you know. Have an enema and then drink a lot of Jolt Cola. Uh, my question was... When you were filming... Too much Freddy, information? I'm sorry. <laughs> when you were filming Freddy vs. Jason, like how... I heard a rumor that you were going to possibly do another. Guys, we were going to do Freddy vs. Jason versus Ash at one time. Oh. But the company got sold. You guys know this. See, this New Line Cinema got sold to Time Warner. And then Time Warner... Gave, and New Line Cinema owned Friday the 13th franchise. They owned the... Uh, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise and Nightmare, obviously Nightmare on Elm Street. So the idea was, these are classics. They knew how good they were. The gentleman who, who does Transformers, uh, Michael Bay. So they, Michael Bay's company is called Platinum Dunes, and he's under that umbrella. And the idea was that his company, not necessarily Michael himself, but that his company would reboot all three franchises. And they did a really good job with the Friday 13th one. Um, not so successful with Nightmare One. And, uh, and then they did a decent uh, uh, Texas Chainsaw. But they want to reboot them all, so they don't want to put the cart before the horse. They don't want to start doing these kind of graphic novel ideas. You know, Freddy, Freddy versus Chucky. <laughs> God forbid. Yeah. I just Trivia have... note, the guy that did my makeup in Nightmare on Elm Street created Chucky. I just know you technically did not lose. What? What? You technically did not lose. I figured this. Here's what I know. Jason kicked my butt up between my shoulder blades, but my head's missing, but Freddy's in, Freddy's in your mind. If you know of Freddy, you can dream of Freddy. If you dream of Freddy, he can get into your subconscious. So if that big dog, Jason, ever falls asleep whining for his mama, <laughs> I'll get him. You're going to have to pick now. 
Okay, so obviously I loved you on Nightmare on Elm Street. I've been terrified by you since I was nine, but I was excited to see you on Supernatural because I'm a huge Supernatural fan. What was so my, my wife has a crush on Jared. <laughs> I, I'm a Jensen fan, but anyway. <laughs> He's too handsome. Yeah, I would well. go out with Jensen. <laughs> How did you end up on Supernatural and what was it like on the set? Uh, the producer uh, produced V, Robert Singer, and he asked for me. And uh, it was fun to go up there and, and, and shoot that cameo. Plus, I think, I mean, I think it's their last season now, unfortunately. But they could have brought me back because I was like a friend of the father of the boys. And I have this, this I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like uh, what they call a backroom doctor, you know, a sleazy doctor. But I do know how to sort of temporarily kill you so you can go to the other world. I enjoyed you as Dr. Robert on there. Dr. Robert, I know. I love the girl that played my assistant on that. She was great. My goth nurse. <laughs> like, like Silent Hill to the max. Brian, here. Yeah, I, I, I will try to get to everybody, guys. I'm sorry. This is the most hands I've ever seen in a panel. I love you guys. I absolutely loved you in all of the Nightmare Before, or Nightmare Before Christmas. Sorry. <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm, I'm a huge fanboy. Um, sorry. Um, but I know you've been on so many shows like Chips, Supernatural, and all that. What show did you love to do, whether it was one episode or many, that you would love to go back to try again? Well, I mean, there's obviously roles that I you know, could do better. Uh, that's why actors shouldn't see dailies, except if you're just trying to work out a certain accent or maybe... You, you, they've, you've dyed, they've dyed your hair or something. You want to see if it looks right, or you're wearing a hairpiece. But uh, no, I. You guys, I was. You guys are also young. I I was quite a popular, busy actor in the '70s. I worked with Burt Reynolds. I worked with Charles Bronson. I starred with Susan Sarandon. I starred with Jeff Bridges, Sally Field. I worked with Scatman Crothers from The Shining, Joanna Cassidy from Blade Runner, uh, Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson. I was around. I was there. Henry Fonda, I starred in a movie with Henry Fonda, arguably the greatest American actor of all time. You know, Jimmy Stewart, Henry Fonda, Marlon Brando. It's like Jimmy Dean, that's it. And, and, and that it was a different life because you did movies or you did TV. You didn't do both back then. TV paid a lot more then, but, but, and it took longer for movies to come out. But I did a movie called Stay Hungry, and I was down in... Uh, in the south in Alabama and I was learning how to drive a, a water ski boat with Sally Field in a bikini and little gold earrings on coming out of the water behind me like Venus on her shell and I was shooting pool with Jeff Bridges and I was getting massages from nurses with Arnold Schwarzenegger and I was eating uh, you know hardcore southern cooking and listening to jazz and eating oysters on crackers and a job that started out and I was only supposed to be there for maybe eight weeks turned into three months so all oh, you know you're a kid and you're getting all that extra money and people like Jack Nicholson are you know visiting this set and stuff oh it was just a great great memory I mean that would be great to be able to go back in time like uh, Tom Sawyer when they, you know, everybody thinks they're dead and they go to their own funeral and listen to people talk about you. We'd be able to go back in time to that set and look at us all young before our careers took off even more 
and uh, kind of relive some of that, you know, without the nervousness in the pit of your stomach, because you want to make sure you learn your lines, you know, for the next day and you please everybody. So that would be something, you know. Uh, I always wanted to play Iago. I understudied Iago uh, in Othello with a great uh, African-American actor named Roger Robinson in the lead. And I never got to do it. And I got to rehearse it a little bit, but never perform it. And I, I, I'm too old now, but I think, I, think I, I, I watched it from backstage every night. I watched the actor that was playing it. And I think I solved it all the problems. Later on, I used to use that for an audition in the theater. And I could do it really big and giant to the back wall, you know. What's he then who says I play the villain? Or I could sit down on the edge of the stage and I'd take a cigarette out from behind my ear, a Bic lighter and light the cigarette and I could look right out in a small theater and say, and what's he then that says I play the villain? And I learned how to do that, and I got, all, I got all these. But it was because I sat backstage and watched it, another actor make mistakes, and I, I solved his mistakes by watching it every night. It wasn't that he wasn't a terrific actor, better than I could have been in that part at that time, because I was truly too young. But it would have been great to have been able to have that on my resume, you know, and, and really have done that. And got, you know, when you do theater, sometimes you get it perfect. Not every night. Not the whole play, but sometimes you get it perfect. You never get it perfect on film. And you do it, and they're happy with it, and it's forever. Oh, my God. That episode of Chips, did I really do it that way? Oh, I should have done it. I should have said it this way. Even in Freddy, I have a line mistake. You know, it's a great line. You're all my children now. I said it wrong in the movie. It should be, you're all my children now. Not your damn parents, mine. You're mine. I hit the wrong word. You know, people do that. You know, uh, and, and, and you have to live with it the rest of your life. You know, it's just one of those things. Thank you so much. Get someone in the back. <laughs> all right, I was wondering, out of all the Freddy scenes in all the Nightmare movies, which one was your favorite to shoot? Well, I don't know about shooting, but, I, but in terms of effectiveness, I love Miss Me in Wes Craven's New Nighter. I love that entrance where I come up out of the bed because what do we do with beds? We sleep in them. And what do we do when we sleep? We dream. And that's where Freddy comes from. And I love that. I love that moment. I love, there's a really good move. <laughs> it's a really good move where I come out from behind the desk in Nightmare 4, you know, with the apple. I'm peeling the apple with my claw. You know, teachers, teacher's pet. Somebody brought me an apple. You know, I just saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, the, the Tarantino movie. And there's this great moment where they sent Di DiCaprio and Brad Pitt are at DiCaprio's house and DiCaprio's guest starred on some show, FBI, FBI the old FBI TV series. And they're watching it and uh, they got an old cold pizza and some warm beer. And now DiCaprio's big scene comes up and, he, and, they sh sh and they're watching it. And DiCaprio comes across a car hood like Starcy and Hutch you guys know the move they made fun of it in the comedy version uh, and, and, and guys used to make fun of it on SNL and stuff but you know the cool move that, that, and we all love it actors we all love it when we can do a cool move or shoot a gun without blinking too much you know and things like that and they use the right moment but in the in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood they're watching it and they're chomping on their pizza and Brad Pitt 
compliments. He's the stunt double of Leonardo DiCaprio, and he compliments him on that cool move that he made. And so it's kind of hard to get your own vanity. But, like, I'd put some pretty cool moves in Freddy. <laughs> So with how iconic you've become, how does it make you feel to know that you and meeting you is on so many people's bucket list now? My what is on their bucket list? Just meeting you. you. Oh, meeting me. Well, you guys, here's the thing that no one ever thought of. And I didn't think about this until about four or five years ago. And you didn't think about it. It just happened to many of you. I am the product of a very happy accident that happened both to my career and to the phenomenon the franchise is. We came of age during the technological revolution, the changing paradigm of video, home video, the video store, the mom and pop video store, then the blockbuster, then the discount, then cable TV, then DVDs, then Blu-ray, then digitally remastered, now streaming. So, when I was a kid, you know, you'd stay up late with your friends on a sleepover and wait through car, car commercials till the scene where, in the uncut version of Frankenstein by James Whale, he's sitting with a little girl playing I love you, I love you not with the flowers, and he, and he breaks her neck and throws her in like a flower into the lake. They cut that out of the book. You can't see it anymore, you know, because he kills the little girl. So... You guys had the pause button, rewind. You could watch it at home five or six times before you had to turn it in again at the video store. But you also watched it at home. Again, like DiCaprio and Brad Pitt with that warm pizza, that cold pizza and that warm beer. I love that line, so I'm going to get it right. <laughs> cold pizza, warm beer. And what did you do? You saw it with your older brother. You saw it with your older sister, your kid sister. You teased your little brother with it because he was afraid of Freddy. You watched your mom jump. Maybe your mom was cool and hip and really got into it. You watched it with your cool stepdad because your mom wouldn't let you see it. Or you were, maybe your parents were divorced and you had dad only on Sundays. And dad just wanted to prove that he loved you more than mom and he let you, he let you watch it. But now what do you have? Now your mom and dad are older. Uh, God forbid they're not alive, but maybe they're not. But you have that memory, that intimacy, that repeated viewing of Nightmare 3 Dream Warriors on a summer evening, you know, with your mom and dad or your sister who's moved away now or your brother that you loved who's over in Afghanistan or something. And you had that shared experience. And I never thought of Nightmare on Elm Street as being... Uh, a shared family experience, this intimate memory that people would have as a, a with, with their family. But it's a fact. And you guys, you fans have shared it with me at my table over the years and in fan mail over the years. So now that Nightmare on Elm Street films have become kind of like It's a Wonderful Life, you all watch it at Halloween now. Like we all watch It's a Wonderful Life or Christmas Story or Miracle on 34th Street during Christmas. It just becomes part of our culture, the fabric of our popular culture. And uh, it, it's just, that, that's just a very remarkable 
thing to be part of as, as just an actor and nothing that I considered back in the day. I was more worried about defending the movie as being too violent or too bloody or too dark. You know, when the PTA mothers would like yell at me on a talk show, you know, in New York. I remember I had one PTA mother saying, no, 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 you're dragging five-year-olds in to see this bloody movie and oh my God and everything. And then the show went off the air. Then the TV sh the news show was over. Same woman asked me for my autograph and wanted me to sign th uh, th things for her class. <laughs> it's a little schizophrenic being Freddie. You guys have seen my little card, you know what I mean? <laughs> Um, so you actually touched on it just now about seeing Frankenstein when you were younger, but because um, some kind of installment of, of Nightmare was so prevalent to us and having a wonderful memory of seeing those late night movies and uh, late night TV, I'm curious, this, um, what were some things that scared you growing up as a child? What were the late night movies that freaked you out in addition I, to Frankenstein? I, I've been thinking about this for a long time, about things that are truly, truly influential on me. And some of them are dark because I was a fanboy. Um, but my horror fascination actually started with a coffee table book that my godfather had. And there was a whole section on the golden age of horror, the 1930s, with Im amazing photos. Literally, uh, daughters of Dracula, and you could see through their nightgowns, kind of like Tina in her nightgown with Freddy in Nightmare One. And it was, to me, it was kind of sexy. And, and, and there was a page in the silence section, two-page fold-out, of all the characters Lon Chaney had done in makeup. And I've told the story a million times, but one of them, he plays a blind man. And we all know the story about the hairpins to make his nostrils weird for Phantom of the Opera. And he, wore, he would always do these amazing things. He was creating makeup every day, but he took the placentia from a hard-boiled egg, a perfectly hard-boiled egg, and he took the shell off and the placentia, and he put it over his eyeball to make it milky so he looked blind. First contact lens, Lon Chaney. Come on down, Lon. But so that's an influence. And maybe that's the latent, hidden, hidden thing way down in my subconscious that made me say yes to Wes Craven, the challenge of the horror makeup. But for me, little Robbie England, it was the Saturday matinee, Forbidden Planet in pristine Vista Vision. And for the next month, my classmates and I would save our lawn mowing money and go back to see it because we couldn't figure out what the monster of the id was, outlined in flames and lightning. And then one day, my friend Ronnie, in the back of the class, the guy that can draw the best, who decorates your spine of your blue notebook with an eyeball on a fork. Ronnie calls out from the back of the class, Oh, damn, it's a saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> and we, then we knew it. We could see the saber-toothed tiger. But they, we didn't have pause buttons. We didn't have rewind. But we saw it in the dark with our melting Chico bonbons in 70-millimeter Vista Vision, pristine Technicolor. And then we went to see... 20,000 leagues under the sea with the Nautilus and the giant squid. Great effect. And when the squid tentacle comes down into the Nautilus's hatch and grabs a sailor and thrashes him about and he rolls into focus and he's got sucker marks on his cheeks and neck from the tentacle. 
And I'm 1954, I'm six years old. Premier, Hollywood Boulevard. My mother loves James Mason. James Mason as Captain Nemo. The Nautilus, brilliant design. And I'm, my eyeballs are in the back of my head. You know where I went next week, a couple of weeks later? Second day opening of Disneyland. You know what they had at Disneyland in, in Tomorrowland? The cutaway of the Nautilus from the movie with Peter Lorre's costume, James Mason's costume, Kirk Douglas's costume, all the props, the entire set of the Nautilus in half. And you go, that's how they do it. That's where they get the cameras inside because cameras were real big back then. And you walk through the set and you hear, I got a whale of a tale to tell you, lads, a whale of a tale or two by Kirk Douglas on the soundtrack. And you're walking and the eye of the Nautilus, the giant eye that matches anthropomorphic logically, it matches the eye of the giant squid, the blinking eye of the squid, and his sharp beak, it opens up. And there, in dappled light outside, this is Disneyland's second day, the giant tentacle, the beak on the squid. And it's underwater lighting. Disney had figured out how to do it. What did that ride become? The submarine ride. But that was the first incarnation of it. I've got the poster. And I think that's why... I wanted to be in movies because I kind of saw behind the curtain. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Come on, guys. Hi. Um, I was just wondering what your favorite kill from the entire series is. I think it's the gentleman behind the right red T-shirt right there with the girl with the microphone behind you. No. I'm <laughs> he looked over his shoulder. Uh, well, I love wiping the, wiping the ceiling with Tina. That's some nasty stuff. Uh, I love, just as a visceral thing, a, a, a fingernails claws on a, on a blackboard moment, the boy uh, with his tendons into puppet strings. But I also love, I think, just because it's so politically incorrect, and I know I'm in Colorado Springs, but I love political incorrectness. Uh, I love... Uh, the boy with a hearing aid, you know? Freddie don't care if you're special needs. He'll come get you, you know? He's an equal opportunity killer. Uh, so, uh, what, what did you think about uh, Dan Harmon's interpretation of your character on uh, Rick and Morty. And if given the chance, would you have voiced Scary Terry? <laughs> I, I love what he's done. You know, and there comes a point when we all have to surrender stuff to others. And it's fun. What, and, and I'm a Hollywood kid, so I know that. You know, I, I mean, I know certain things that we get, we get anxious about. But, you know, like people get worried about sequels. Well, I don't want to live in a world without Aliens 2. Okay. And uh, half the movies that your parents watched are remakes of silent movies, including Frankenstein, including Phantom of the Opera and things like that. But I love some of the cartoon variations. I love, that's me on The Simpsons. But, but Freddy's on South Park. The South Park Freddy is crazy. He lives out in the woods. You know, he lives out in the woods down by the river in a van. No, he's just really weird. 
You know, he's just really strange. And he's on Family Guy, I think, once he showed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Freddie's been around. And I love that. I just love when everybody pushes it and plays with it, you know. Um, and it's not always right for me to do the voice because sometimes they want that snotty Seth MacFarlane voice. You know, I think Seth does everything now. I don't know if you guys know this, but, but Seth MacFarlane sings phenomenally. And I like that Sinatra stuff. I mean, I like a I, I was a kid going to Las Vegas when you'd go to the lounge and you'd hear the Rat Pack. I was there as a kid with my head on my father's lap and cigarette smoke everywhere. You know, so I, and it was wonderful. Don't let anybody tell you it wasn't. Um, and it cost nothing to get in, but you had to dress up. Everybody dressed up a little bit. You know, women put on a sexy dress, men put on a tie, but nobody went broke. You know, getting a ticket then, you know, the, in, the, in the lounges and stuff. So, but, but I was driving one day, horrible L.A. traffic. I'd been working all day. I think it did a voiceover. And I'm just going, you know, five feet, five feet, five feet. And I put on, I, my, my wife got me the Sirius radio for, you know, for Christmas a couple of years ago. And it's great because you got the reggae channel and the Motown channel and all this stuff that I like and new music and alternative and I was I found this channel called seriously Sinatra and sometimes it's Tina Sinatra these boots are made for walking and sometimes she's the DJ and she's out of her home in Palm Springs you know with Frank Sinatra's hair still probably in the drain and and she tells all this gossip about the musicians and everything well this one was hosted by Seth MacFarlane and it's his favorite Sinatra songs. And he knows every musician on the cut. And he's talking about Nelson Riddle, the best arranger in the history of contemporary music. And I just, it's like, he's, he's on top of he can, that. He's in the new miniseries right now with Russell Crowe as Roger Ailes, the head of Fox News that's on HBO now or Showtime. And he's great in that. The guy can do, and then he's got his sci-fi spoof on yeah, Oroville, but he can do anything. He's just really an amazing guy. This company, that's the reason we're all here together, is going to be doing a show in Rhode Island soon. And I did a movie there called Incubus. And while I was there, I visited the Rhode Island School of Design. And I went to see their galleries. And I went to their little gift store. And he was a student there. And there, you can get, like, these Seth MacFarlane student mugs and stuff. He was, like, the cool art student. You know, he's just all these things. He's really kind of an amazing guy.